But we are called to build something together, not just a cool thing to come to once a week, but something greater. I, I believe God is taking us to a place where we're going to experience things that many of us have only read about in Scripture. And I also believe that we're going to go to a place where we're going to experience things that we have not read about in Scripture. Jesus himself says if there, there's not enough pages to contain all that I have for you or even all that I've done. And I believe that we have to be willing to go there. We use the term a lot in this house, apostolic, that we are an apostolic house. Apostolic house simply means we're wanting to go into uncharted waters and discover the things of God that others may not be willing to discover. The problem is when you start to go in uncharted waters, you also encounter uh, storms that you never saw coming. And I can tell you that as the leader of this house, some of the battles that I have to fight daily are ones that I would have never thought about fighting when I started Relentless nine years ago. If I saw it coming, I probably wouldn't have done it. There's a reason why the Lord only lets you see but so far. There's a ringing going on. I don't know if you can help that. As an apostolic house, we're going to go and do some things that may seem contrary to what we've been taught in the church. Nothing that's contrary to Scripture, but I think a lot of the church has built systems and programs that are actually contrary to what the Scripture says. And we have to be a group of people who are willing to be crucified for going there. And a lot of times, churches will start to go there, will start to embrace new ideas. But then what happens is you start to get some traction, and people start to come in, and they'll start to bring in culture of churches they used to be a part of that wouldn't let them do anything. And they try to impose that culture on the new thing, not realizing that you're actually putting a, a boot on the wheel. And before I go any further, I am not trying to speak to any specific situations. I am talking in a very generalized sense. Is that clear? That we, that we have to be careful to not make what happened, that what didn't work yesterday, work for today because we're in a new house or a new place or a new season. We are a new house in a new place in a new season, and it's going to take different strategies. That is why it is so important for us to be a house of prayer. Because we can't rely on the strategies that have worked for every other church. Do they work? Yeah. But it's not going to be for this one. And we have to be willing to devote ourselves to what God has called to devote ourselves to in building the house of God with certain kingdom materials. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, and that Spirit of God lives in you? You see, the thing that we're trying to build is the very temple of God, which is the expression of a building called the people. When we're saying build the church, we're not talking about build a program. We're not talking about building systems. We're talking about building the people of God. We are the temple of God. We are the building. We are the house. 
We are the church. We are the thing that God says, in order for you to be built appropriately, I have given you certain materials that will build you all into a, a divine expression that I've seen long ago. The thing that houses the presence of God in the earth. And there are certain materials that God's given us to build us, the temple, but we do not get to change the material to meet cultural standards. Cultural standards should start to shift as we build the temple that they don't know that they actually need. We are called to build a place that they need and they don't even know they need it yet. And one reason they don't know they need it is because they've never seen it. And what we've done is we've built false temples that condemn them rather than creating a place where the courtyard is open to anyone that can come in. And I'll get into the courtyard a little later. They're not seeing the temple because we keep building the wrong one. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, it says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it will not collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and does not obey it is like, is, it is a foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come, the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Rains, floodwaters, winds. It's talking about troubles, trials, calamities, all those things that are coming. We keep hearing about this shaking. Well, the fact of the matter is there's a shaking that comes from God, and there's a shaking that comes from winds and rains that God had nothing to do with. When God came and said, and, and, and they were on the boat, and he said, peace to the waves, if, if, the, if God had sent that storm to get those waves going, when Jesus rebuked the waves, he would have been rebuking his father. The, fa <laughs> the father didn't send the storm. The storm was a fruit of the world in chaos. That is why the scripture says the earth is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters of man to put this chaos into order. Does that make sense? So this is saying that in life, you're going to have all kinds of things come against you. You're going to have gossip. You're going to have slander. You're going to have backbiting. You're going to have backstabbing. You're going to have people talking for you, people talking against you. And he's saying, if you want to be built in such a way that you will not move and that you will not be shaken, you must be built on the foundations of Jesus and not the foundations of America. Can I say that again? We need to adopt the culture of God and not the culture of America. I believe one of the biggest issues in the church of America is, uh, is actually American pride. I think there's a healthy version of, hey, I am a United States citizen. I don't want to speak against that. We live in a great country. Amen? Amen? We live in a country where we can worship God in freedom and truth. But we should not worship the culture of a country that is actually not redeemed fully. We have the blessing of being in a free country to bring it back to the model that God has given us in his building materials. If we would build the temple with his materials, his house will not fail. His house will not fall. So the fact of the matter is when, we, when we're seeing houses of God fall, 
It's only because of one thing. They haven't been being built with the right materials. I, I was guilty of this when we started Relentless. I looked at every church model that was out there, and they're good church models. And they work for a lot of churches. But they weren't going to work for this one because God, for some reason, want, he has this thing with Kyle Garrison where he can't just go with status quo. And it's amazing and it's fun and it's frustrating at the same time. But he said, I've got something new for you and you're going to have to go into some areas that there hasn't been a model for. Stop using that material and start pressing in to mine. And if we need to start realizing we are the building, the temple of God, and we have got to be more quick to crucify our opinions and our ways and our culture for his ways and his culture. We, a peculiar people say, I'm no longer chasing an American dream that was made up by some obscure dude in, in, you know, hundreds of years ago. A peculiar people say, I'm chasing the God-given dream over my life that was known before the earth was even formed. I don't want to chase a dream that, 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 that people told me I'm supposed to have. I want to go after the plans and purpose that God has for me. And what this is supposed to be is we are supposed to build the corporate house of God where we're seeing each other walk into divine assignments. The vision of this house, to see people come alive in Christ. We exist to see you come alive and walk into what you are anointed to do. Right? So everything about an apostolic house is we're going to equip you to do the things that no one else will believe in you for. Every member of this worship team, at some point, when, when they were up here, at some point relentless, I think they're a great worship team. Do you all think they're a great worship team? But all of them had never had experience in leading at some point. And now we're actually helping other houses of worship because we took a chance on people that could not lead and now they've become extraordinary leaders. And it's the same with people in this house. It's the same with me. I talk about how we started the church with four people. Those four people took a chance on me, someone who never led a church, to say, let's do it differently. And they took a chance to fail. And look where we're at now. I want to be a part of a group of people when God says, God has, when God has told you, I have this dream for you, we're a people that say, let's find out if it's really God or not. Not just, no. Because if it's really God, it's going to happen. If it's not, we'll find out together. And you may fail, but we'll fail together, and then we'll pick up together and go after the vision together. Is that okay? In 1 Corinthians 3, we just read that he says, don't you all realize that you are a temple of God? Before Paul asked this, do you realize that we're the very temple of God, he's addressing an argument in the church. He looks at the church, don't throw it up there yet, and, he's, and he says, you guys are divided. Y'all are arguing about who do you follow. Do you follow Paul or do you follow Apollos? They're arguing about who do we give the most honor to. They're arguing about who gets the credit. Church people don't do that, right? They're, they're, they're in this argument, they're in this quarrel, and this is what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. I, I planted the seeds in your hearts, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. I'm just going to let that stay right there. I, plant, yeah, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, it was God who made it grow. Can I say that in relentless terms? Kyle planted the seeds. Other people in this house watered the seeds. 
but none of us made it grow. He did. So it doesn't matter if I'm planting or you're watering. What matters is he's the one that gets all the glory, all the honor, all the credit. (laughs) Then he says, it's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together. That word together in the Greek and the Hebrew both mean together. The one who waters work together with the same purpose, both will be rewarded for their own hard work. The problem is people get wrapped up in rewards that are seen or immediate. The work is to be in such a way where we realize it's for one reason. Not to get credit, but for God to get the credit and to accomplish the call to build the temple and build the church. It doesn't matter who did what. What matters is what's happening. Are we building each other, are are we building into each other in such a way with divine materials where God says, I can make that grow. I can add to that house. I can let that dream come to fruition. He wants to grow something, but we've got to give him something to work with. And I want to point out, it doesn't say that they're rewarded for their gifts and their talents. It says that they were rewarded for their own hard work. Many have gifts, and you will never reap the rewards because you have never put the gifts to work to build the temple. Just because you are talented does not mean you will be rewarded for your talent. You can be a great teacher, doesn't mean you're going to get rewarded for being a great teacher. What do you get rewarded on? Laboring with your gift. Laboring with your talent. You see, the problem is in church culture... We have embraced this idea of one man in the pulpit, everyone's seated, and y'all all have to receive from me, and the church gets a little shaky when I start bringing other people into the pulpit that might not be as great as I am, or maybe who are great in their own standard, and they're just completely different than I am. And we start saying, well, why is Kyle not in the pulpit? There's other people preaching. I'm seeing people come alive in Christ. They have teaching gifts. Let's, let, let's pour into that. We've got to get away from this idea that one man is called to the ministry. You know, we're, you know when you were called to the ministry? The day you said yes to Jesus. Amen. Ministry is not the organization called Relentless. Ministry is you were reborn and your life is a ministry unto God. The question is, what are you doing with your life? Or have you just become someone who comes to church because you know it's the culture and you're supposed to do it? And it's good to go once a week, and you want to be right with God. If I can just be very clear, if you believe in Jesus, he has made you right with God. This is not about your righteousness. This is about I'm coming together because there's something in this meeting of people, of the people of God, that is a necessary material in this house being built. Not just the corporate house, but the individual house. You are a temple of God. You house the Holy Spirit. You cannot be built to your max capacity without a corporate gathering. We should be obsessed with this. Why? Because in verse 9 it says, For we are both God's workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Who cares who gets the credit as long as the building is being built? 
And the funny thing is, when you get over you, you will be built. But there is a certain way to build and a certain thing we have to build on. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have. What's that foundation? Jesus Christ. The house has to be built on a foundation of Jesus, meaning everything we do should mirror his character. What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The whole purpose of the Word becoming flesh in a man called Jesus was for us to see how we are to properly operate on earth as it is in heaven. So if there's anything about you that does not look like Jesus, then that part of your house needs to be remodeled. You do not get to tell Jesus, this is just who I am because this is how I was raised. Because in that moment, you give more glory to an earthly father than a heavenly one. You do not get to tell me, this is how you are because this is your culture. Can I just, can, can I just really just punch you in the face for a second? Your culture needs redemption. The fact of the matter is, we can take 20 nationalities and we should all be able to express the same way. Because it's not about, well, I am this nationality and this is how we are. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm of a heavenly nationality and I want to show you how that goes and we all walk in that same culture. And those are the materials God's given us to build with. He's saying, I want a people that look like me, who mirror me. I want a house that looks like the design I gave it. Are you willing to go there? But note, because I'm sure some of us are thinking, well, how do we do it? Or, or what's lacking? I want you to note that the apostle actually laid the foundation of Jesus. Can you throw that last verse up there? Um, just, uh, yeah, verse 10. Verse 10, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. He says, I've laid the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus. I commented on someone's post on Facebook this week, and they said amen even though I was disagreeing with them. It says something to the degree of... Um, uh, where am I going? Uh, foundation like an expert. I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. They said we should only pay attention to the teachings that come from the mouth of Jesus. Good thought. But according to the scripture, everyone was taught according to the doctrine of the apostles. And they were learning from the doctrine of the apostles because the apostles were giving doctrine from a foundation that was called Jesus. This is where I'm getting nervous. (laughs) But what happens in church, everyone loves to find a new church and hear a new message from the pastor. And then when I start laying down some things that maybe are a little different, 
all of a sudden, is the pastor following Jesus anymore? Or are we willing to go to a place that we've never actually seen being built? Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, so, so hear me out. There is a call to keep us accountable, right? Everything I do, you should keep me accountable to the word of God. Because all the doctrine that I bring should do what? It should match one foundation, not the foundation of Kyle Garrison, not the foundation of Relentless Church, the foundation of who? Jesus. There is a call to accountability. Any pastor that doesn't want to be kept accountable to his people should get off the pulpit. Okay? There is always a call to accountability. But there is also a call to remember that as coming together in a house of worship, there is a level of realizing that I am your friend, but I am also, in fact, the pastor, or I will say, the apostle of the house. I don't want anyone to ever call me Apostle Kyle. That's not it. But I do operate in the function of apostolic. And we have to realize that if we're going to go to a new place, we have to honor the place we're going to. Just like I have to honor the things in you that no one's ever seen, you've got to honor the things in me that you've never heard. But you better make sure I'm keeping to a foundation called Jesus. Is this okay? I know this is tough, but I, we, we have got to shift a little bit. And I'm building up for, I'm getting to the material tonight, so just, is this okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I still love you. They had trust in Paul as a man of God to lay a foundation. That's called honor and submission to the one God was pleased with. And when you see a foundation that looks like Jesus, we should want to say, hey, I want to help build that. And that's why you're here. You're here to help build upon a foundation not change the foundation. The vision for this house was given to us by God nine years ago. You don't know better than that vision. And again, I'm not speaking to something specific. I'm speaking in a generalized sense to the entire body. We do not get to change the vision. We, we go along with the vision God gave. And I believe God get, has given us a vision to be a church that is unlike no other in this area and that will walk into an expression that this area has never seen to such a degree that the lost will come running to figure out what's going on. And we're not going to get there by changing this culture to the culture of everyone's last church. going to have empty seats next week. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yes. Amen. Now, now watch this in verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will, will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. Do you all hear that? Yeah. But like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. It is not the amount of work being evaluated. 
It's did you work with divine materials? Because you can spend all your life doing stuff that was never a material God gave you to work with. And there's a lot of people who labor with materials to build a house that are opposite than the materials God gave. Like a lot of people labor with gossip instead of laboring with edification. What's the building material there? God says we're all called to prophesy, not slander. You know, you know what? Pro- difference between the office of a prophet and the gift of prophecy? Prophecy, edify, build up, not tear down. Many labor with opinions to hinder building rather than with building with honor and submission. Many labor with cultural flavor. Well, we got to bring this into the church because this is better. This is what the world's doing. I, I saw a post this week, and if this offends you, so what? But I, I, saw, I saw a post this week about a very well-known pastor, um, and I was surprised because he's having a conference in his church, a church of about probably 20, 25,000 people, where he's bringing in a gay couple to speak to the LGBT community of his church on how to raise kids when you're a gay couple. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Why do I bring that up? Such, he, he, has, he has labored well in building the house, and now he says, how can I build it more? And instead of going to God, he brought in culture. And that's what's happening in the church. We, we, we can't bring in culture because we cannot add to anything other than the foundation that looks like who? Jesus. Many labor with what they think it should be. Many labor with hurt from the past. Many labor with bitterness. Don't, don't work your relationships according to failed ones. Don't build up walls with people in the church because you've had bad experiences with people in the church. Right? We, 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 we have to say, no, no, God, what do you want me to, to build with? I mean, look, look at Jesus. He called people to go eat, and he sat with people, and, and the one he sat closest to at the very last supper stabbed him in the back. But that didn't stop him from inviting more to the table. I don't know about you, but I think we need to take a look at these materials again. What are the materials we're called to build with? And tonight, just for a few more minutes, I want to talk about, I think, one of the most foundational materials, and that's simply this, throw it up there, fellowship. Fellowship. Many of us read, is this okay tonight? I know know I'm dabbling, but I, I, I want... I want you to hear my heart. We have got to shift into looking more like him and less like us. Uh, it sounded wrong to me when I heard it. I've shared this with the worship team and a couple others. But we were leading worship at a church a few weeks ago, and Jacob um, gave a word over the uh, congregation. And when I heard it, I thought to myself, oh, that's so wrong. And uh, there he is. And I, and, and, but, but, but then I quickly realized, oh, my gosh, he's so right. I never talked to him about it because I don't want to puff his ego up. But he, uh, I'm just kidding. But he, he, we were singing, and, and I always sing 
a, a, a lyric when, when I lead worship, more of you and less of me, more of you and less of me. And Jacob gets up there and he says, you know what? It's not more of, of you and less of me. It's more of you and all of me. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah. Because it's not God less of me, it's the true me. He wants more of it revealed. What he wants less of is the me that actually never existed until I got involved. So God, more of me is what I want to give you. More of me revealed in the earth. More of me to, to be revealed. And I really believe that in order for more of us to be revealed, we have to understand that there is a need for something very powerful called fellowship. In Acts 2, we always look at Acts 2 and say, oh, we want the church to look just like it was in Acts 2 and see all these crazy things because of the Holy Spirit fell on the church and there were tongues and flames of fire. Peter preached 3,000 people were saved. Look what happens in verse 43. It says, A deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had with Pastor Kyle. They sold their, I'm just kidding, shared everything they had. Verse 45, they sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at a temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. I'm going to pause there. They shared their meals with joy. With joy. I got to go to another church gathering. With joy. <laughs> all the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Can you say that with me? All the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. People were getting saved, there was miracles, there were signs, there was wonders, they were meeting together, they were sharing meals, they were sharing possessions, people were enjoying the goodwill of the people, they were generous, all of this. And did you catch it? So the Lord added to their what? Their fellowship. The Lord cannot add to a fellowship if there is not fellowship. In fact, at the beginning of this passage of Acts 2, in this portion of the chapter, it says this in verse 42. All of the believers devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The word fellowship in the Greek is a word, if you know it, say it with me, koinonia. Now y'all know it. Koinonia simply means having a share in something. Or sharing with someone in something. Or you could say participation in something or with someone. It's a mutual bond. The best definition that I found, in my opinion, was simply this. Communion by participation. What is fellowship? Communion by participation. We are to participate in a community with whom we participate in the sharing of something. There's lots of communities. There's lots of fellowships. There's lots of opportunities to connect with people. The question is, 
are you participating in a divine community that shares the same God? Not just the same sports likes or just not the same you know, coffee drinks or not just the same recreational ideas, but, and not that necessarily any of those are bad, but is your main fellowship, we share the same God. We share the same love for God. Because if you fellowship with people who don't have the same love for God, you will find yourself loving other things more than Him. The same God for life. Like you don't have to wrestle with, should I do this or should I do that? Because you're in a community where that decision's already made for you. Like you never have to worry about making the choice to go to that place or not because the community you're involved in will never go to that place. And for some reason, we want the lost to get fixed before bringing them into the fellowship when the only way they'll get fixed is to bring them into the fellowship. We share, the same, we share the same victories, the same desire for a harvest of souls, the same desire to worship God, and we share struggles. But a fellowship does not separate and struggle. Y'all hear me? A fellowship should not separate and struggle when it's true fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, it says, I, it says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Let there be no divisions, no divisions, no, 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 no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind united in thought and purpose. Galatians 6, 2, share each other's burdens. And in this way, you obey the law of Christ. You never, listen to me, you never have a justified reason to be separated in what you consider to be your fellowship of believers. The problem is some of us have more fellowship with the lost and we call it justified by means of ministry. There's nothing wrong with having fellowship with the lost. We should have a fellowship with the lost. That was Jesus' model. He went to the lost and says, hey, let's eat. But you cannot use a fellowship with the lost to replace your fellowship with the saved. Because the fact of the matter is, a lot of times we find more fellowship with the lost because we identify them with our old man. Instead of diving into a fellowship of believers who will pull out the rebirthed new man. I think I know what the shaking is that we're going to experience. There is going to be, there is already happening and will be increasingly more a shaking where everyone as a, that's a part of this house will have to choose one of two ways, new man or old. And the ones who choose new, we are going to see things happen that Acts didn't even see. I believe it. We have great desires that can mislead us. I'll give you one desire that the church is a little misled in. And hear me out because it's going to sound a little heretical. So hear me, hear the whole thing out, like top to bottom. 
We have a desire where we say we need to create disciples. How many of you want to create disciples? It's okay. I, I want to create disciples too. It's not a trick question. Okay. But did you know that the term disciple isn't used that much in Scripture? It's used 260 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Nowhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament. We've made making disciples the labor when really disciples are a result of true fellowship. <laughs> I say, yeah, now I'm getting, okay. You are making disciples and inviting them into a fellowship. The question is, is there a fellowship to invite them into? See, we don't build the church by creating disciple programs. He adds to the disciple program called fellowship. Because when the saved are in true fellowship, they become disciplined or discipled by way of accountable relationships. And, 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 and this is where it doesn't sound new, but it's very new. Because when we hear discipleship program, we hear Bible study, small group. True discipleship is simply this. We are in fellowship with each other to such a point where if I see issue in you, I'm not walking on eggshells to point out the issue because you know I'm pointing it out because I love you and I want to see true you revealed and the same receiving from you. True fellowship is saying, hey, let's, let's grow together. Growing means celebrating the victories, highlighting the struggles. I want to be disciplined. So I want to be in a fellowship with believers who will guide me in the disciplines. But there's a difference in guiding people into discipline and rebuking them for what they're not disciplined in. And this is where the church struggles. Because we have people that walk in the doors that are not like us. And, and the first thing we do is start building up walls because... There is something about them that I'm discerning. I'm going to skip to that real quick. Now, I'll get, that, I'll get to that in a minute. What we start to do is we start to build up walls with people who are different with people who are new, with people who are not disciplined, with people who do get it wrong, with people who are still involved with the ways of the world. Let them come into a fellowship so discipline can be learned by way of relationship. Not let them earn their way into fellowship by getting in the discipleship program. <laughs> this is the religious spirit that we're coming against. The biggest material to create disciples is divine, true, pure relationship with whoever. The problem is we pride and offense rather than being devoted to the teachings. We pride and offense rather than being devoted to the relationship. We have reasons as to why we separate when all God's materials are, are bring them in. Acts 2, 42, I'm going to read it again. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals. When you're devoted to the teachings, you'll surrender your way or what you knew because you're not trying to build a house that looks like others. You're trying to move into a new form of fellowship that is right and divine. 
as long as the foundation is who? Jesus. Jackie Tyre gave a word for relentless last week. Does she read it in the, I can't remember, does she read it in the service? Okay. It's bad that I had to ask that. I'm going to read it again, though. And just to be clear, she got this well before she was here that weekend. She told me she was holding on to it a while. It said, this is from God. Okay, this is a, a word from God. Relentless church, I have called you to be a beacon in this region. Not simply a beacon of my love, but a beacon of my kingdom rule, which flows out of my love. I think that's to pause right there. Rules should be expressed through love. Many have misunderstood my kingdom rule, have operated out of misconceptions and misunderstandings of my pure and perfect love, mercy, and grace that opened the door for my purposes to be thwarted and the kingdom of darkness to be fortified against my rule of righteousness, justice, and truth. Go with me. This is God. Church, go with me as I bring you into greater and greater understanding of the power of my love to overcome darkness and push back the gates of hell. Now, I want to say this to be clear. The gates of hell are real. Hell is a real thing. Satan is a real entity. He does not have the power of omnipresence. So stop thinking that you are so important that you're the one that fights him. (laughs) That'll save you from a lot of your fear. It's not the devil. It's probably just a demonic suggestion in your mind who can't even present themselves in front of you. But his love overcomes the fiery gates of hell. Right? My love is true. My love is just. My love is pure. My love is holy. My love is righteous. My love is steadfast, uncompromising, and my love is relentless. In the days of shaking, what have we been talking about? Shaking. And the resetting of this nation, I have called and positioning you to be a pure beacon of love, light, and truth for those who are shaken to come and find a place of safety and sure footing. Be sure, be very, very sure that the foundation upon which you stand, personally and corporately, are of me and not constructed out of the religious systems and structure that have left too many people shipwrecked, disheartened, displaced, and disillusioned. And I'm seeing that more and more in the church. People are leaving because they don't know what church is. They've been hurt by it. There's been too much going on that does not look like the love of God. And Relentless has been called to reset that culture. I am shaking everything that can be shaken. And this shaking shall reveal what's truly of my kingdom and what's not. Do not resist the shaking. Yield to me in the shaking so that I might remove from you anything that is not of my kingdom. So if you are feeling a tension right now of having to choose different things, it's because we are being shaken and we have to let go of things that are familiar with old self. It is a crossroads of at this point, leave it or you're going to be stuck where you're at. As you yield to my shaking, you'll find yourself strengthened, fortified, properly postured as the beacon that I've called you to be a bright, to, to be to brightly shine into the darkness as a guiding light for those who are lost, seeking, shaken, desperate to find the way in the midst of what shall be in the days of head. Fear not, 
Only keep your eyes fixed upon me. Stand steadfast upon my word by my spirit to see the wonders that I shall do in the days ahead. There is so much to come. And how did Jesus say the temple will withstand or yield to all the shaking? Build the foundation on him. His materials prepares us for shaking that's of him and shaking that's not. And part of how that's built is realizing how we are built. See, I, I, I pulled this message out of Mark chapter 2 because I thought it was a great example of what fellowship should look like. Can I go a little more? All right, get, give me just 45 more minutes. We'll be done. Just kidding. In Mark 2, it says Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. How many of you know that tax collectors were not good things back then? And they're great now. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Did you see what just happened there? Jesus was walking along, and he didn't say, hey, Levi, are you saved? He didn't say, Levi, if you had to make a choice today, would you burn or would you go to heaven? He, he said, hey, are you, you hungry? Hey, come, come, come follow me. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home at dinner as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. So just to be clear, the Messiah chose to eat with everyone who did nothing like Jesus. Right? But when the teachers of the religious law, let me say that again, when the pastors saw him eating with tax collectors, and when, when Christians saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? I get that all the time. Pastor Kyle, I saw where you were on Facebook. Yeah. I was being a light because no one else will light it up. See, we don't like that, though. Okay. No one in here did that, by the way. That was a generalized thing. Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call those who, who think they... I've called to come call those not who think they're righteous but those who know they're sinners you see there's so much in this passage because at first he saw him and he invited him in i gotta ask you how often you bring someone into fellowship without trying to convince them that they're lost it's no secret everyone is searching for a fellowship why aren't we inviting them in why, why aren't we inviting people, like, not, not, uh, mm. so, let, let me, let me say this correctly. There is the need that those who have been hurt by church, who are Christians, who are looking for a, a new church, there is a need to bring them into the house. But there is also another need to bring people into the house that don't know anything about what the house looks like. They don't know they need Jesus. It's funny how we'll invite people to, hey, you, you, you want to go like hang out downtown? But no one say, hey, I'm going to go hang out with this group of people Saturday at 6. You want to come with me? It's, hey, do you want to come to church? Oh, why? 
Why not just invite them into, there's a great group of people who you would love to hang out with Saturday night. And expose them. The worst that happens is they run the opposite direction. But you know what does happen in that moment? A seed is planted. He, he brings them in on this journey, and he says, I've come to heal the sick. Not those who don't think they need to be healed. In other words, he saw his need and invited him into a fellowship where the need would be met. But what we do is we see all forms of sick and without, and we find reason as to why they're not worth our time. When you see their need, don't crucify them. Embrace them. That's the fellowship we should be creating. I'm not talking about literal sickness here necessarily. I'm talking about when you see their religion, do you embrace them or push them away because they're religious? I'm talking about when you see, when you see people covered in tattoos, do you assume the worst because of your religious constructs? When they're probably the most pure people in the world and you're the most religious Pharisee you'd ever meet. On the other side of that, do people covered in tattoos look at non-tattoo people and assume they're religious? Right? Those are the things. I got permission to talk about that. <laughs> some of y'all are looking at people that y'all know have tattoos. I've already talked to them and got the okay. <laughs> but, 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 but those are the things that we have got to call out and break down. I, I don't have one tattoo on me. But I love people who do the body art stuff as long as it's not necessarily a uh, idol to another god if you don't think tattoos should be on people i don't care but I, I'm, I'm when i when i'm interested in, it, it's not necessarily things they've done in their life i want to get to know who they are yeah. and, and 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 body art is not going to strap me to find out who they are okay and if i can go any further if a homosexual walks into this church i'm not going to be like did you see what just walked in I'm going to be like, hey, we're going to dinner after church to jalapenos. Would you like to come? And I'm going to invite them into a fellowship. And I'm going to let them see a different lifestyle, not by rebuking theirs first, but by first inviting them in. It doesn't mean that I'm saying their sin is okay. It does say I'm interested in the man or the woman that they don't know exists. And I'm saying come into the fellowship. When people have different theologies, are we okay with being together in a fellowship? When, when, when we see that, well, I, I, you know, well, there's a lot of, you know, more mature seasoned people of age coming to the church. And, <laughs> and, and, we start say, and we start saying, it's not a young church anymore. So, God's not going to send prodigals home unless there's fathers and mothers to embrace them. And on the other side of that, all you mothers and fathers, you've got to be okay with embracing sons and daughters that went away and got lost in identity. We, this is the true fellowship of believers we're talking about. Hmm. I wrote this down. We've got to, have, we've got to embrace relationship and not assumption. Now back to the spirit of discernment. <laughs> See, what we do is we say, I have a spirit of discernment. It's a very real thing. It's a very real gift. 
But discernment was never meant to separate you. It was meant to prepare you. Discernment comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a way of having insight into determining the true nature of a situation, a person, or a thing. There's many people that have a spirit of discernment. It's not a gift to help you build walls. King Solomon, one of the wisest people ever, we just did a whole chapter about him, or a book about him. When he's praying in 1 Kings 3.9, he says, Give me an understanding heart so that... So that can you throw that up there? It's, yeah, it's uh, 1 Kings 3.9. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well. And know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? Why did King Solomon ask God for discernment? To help him govern, not help him build walls to separate himself. 1 John 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. But when you find them as false, do you pray into a strategy to guide them back to right ways? Or do you just build a wall? Because if I can just be honest, there's plenty of people that are in relentless, that have been in relentless, that will come to relentless, that will say stuff that's just dumb and not of God. But I'm not going to say get out. I'm going to say let's have coffee. And I would encourage you with me as the apostolic leader, if I say something that shakes you, ask me for coffee instead of rebuking. Because I can guarantee you I'm not just speaking from thin air. I'm speaking from what I believe God is showing me. And you know what? If I saw it wrong and you show me that I'm wrong and I, and I realize I've done something totally off culture, I'm going to be a humble man and get up here and say, hey, church, 86 that comment. But we have to develop a fellowship where that is welcome on both sides. And I can't really say that, you know, we're, we are a family of believers here. This is an amazing house. We are people who do life together. I, I, find that, I found out that women are going to uh, uh, New Orleans uh, this weekend, and, and they're just going on a trip together. And I, I found out that people are going out to dinner, and there's groups doing this and groups doing that. Pastor Kyle never gets invited. But I see all these things happen, and, and, I, and, I, think, I, and I think to myself, this is amazing. People are doing life together, and it's not on a Wednesday night service at 7 or a Tuesday night small group. It's people are doing life together. That's true fellowship, but there has to be a greater level of that fellowship if we're going to go to new places building the temple of God. Stop assuming, because sometimes your discernment or your wisdom is actually wrong. So when you get a discernment about someone, you test the spirit, you may find out that your conclusion was off. But you can only find that out through relationship, not assumption. I hear so many people say, I have a discernment about that person. And when I say, how many times have you hung out with them or had a conversation, they say never. Immediately, I reject their discernment. Because they will not take the discernment to invest into fellowship. Fact of the matter is, there's been plenty of people in this church who I've discerned horrible things about, and they've become some of the greatest leaders I've ever seen. None of, none of y'all. Some of y'all look at me like, is it me? I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. 
But what's important is that you're great now. <laughs> can I go? Can I be even real? There's there there are those of you that have seen me years ago who almost left the church because I was such a jerk. Jacob. But you know why he stayed? And he's t- he tells me this almost every opportunity he gets to keep me humble. He says, I stayed because I never doubted for a second that you were hearing from God. And where you may have done things in the wrong way, I knew where you were going was the right thing. What's true fellowship? We can stick through the jerk moments. We can stick through the struggles and embrace the victories as well. Because we're a people going after the heart of God. And people can be great and people can be dumb. But we're after the same thing. I'm going to show you one last thing about assumption. I know this is long, but is this good tonight? Okay. Now, I'm going to read you a story that many of you are familiar with. I'm going to read it really quick. Some of you will know it very soon when I start reading it. It's in John chapter 4, verse 1 through 30. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. That's funny. The first time I let someone baptize someone, I got calls. They're not ordained. So? Anyways, verse 3. So he left Judea. He returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. What is the story about? The woman at the well. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised because Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I'll give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You had five husbands. You aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Let me just say that right there. Don't get weirded out with people reading your mail. Like if someone says, the Lord showed me this about you, it's for a purpose of bringing you further into fellowship. Okay? Um, Verse 20. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerasim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming. It will not matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Can I pause there for a second? It doesn't matter if you're in Israel or in America. It doesn't matter. He's everywhere. 
like without the V, the A where. That was lame. Where am I at? Verse what? 22. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? They never asked him that. The woman left her water jar beside the well, ran back to the village, telling everyone, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, let me dabble. We all know the story of the woman at the well. And we all know what we've been taught, what most people understand it to be, what I've always understood it to be. The woman was promiscuous. She had many sexual partners, five husbands. Now she's living with a man outside of marriage. She was an outcast because we have always heard, well, she was going to get water in the middle of the day. And usually women wouldn't get war in the middle of the day, so she was coming in the middle of the day so that she wouldn't be ridiculed or rebuked because she was such an uh, outcast of society. She was an unbeliever. She didn't recognize Jesus, right? Assumptions. Because what do we really know? Here is what we actually know based off the scripture. She was at a well getting water. We don't know why at that time of day. She was married five times. She was with someone who's not yet married. And she went back to the town and everyone listened to her. No one knows why she came to the well in the middle of the day. We assume she was an outcast. But many of you don't know, and many of, the, of us in the church that grew up hearing the story don't know, that wells were actually sacred places. And it was common for Samaritans to have female priests. Could she have been one of them? Oh, that's quiet. When she went back to the town, they all listened to her. She wasn't a nobody. Think about the conversation. She knew about the stories of Jacob. She knew what the well represented. She knew the law. She knew the divide between Jews and Samaritans as to why they worship. We don't know. Think about this. Many don't know that, that, that back in this day, women could not get a divorce. It had to be given to them by the man. So her getting married five times actually had nothing to do with necessarily her promiscuity. It could have been she wasn't producing kids and the men wanted kids, so they divorced her. It could have been, what if she was a priest and they were intimidated? She was handed a divorce five times, and then she was with this guy that she didn't marry. We assume the husband were men. But what if she was a priest, and what if Jesus is actually referring to your five husbands, meaning you have a relationship or you're married to five things? She was a Samaritan. She knew the, the stories of the Bible. There are how many books of the Torah? One, two, three, four, five. What if he was simply saying you were married to those five and now you say you're married and your new husband is actually religion but you don't commit to anything. You live with him but you're not doing it like most of the church today. We don't know. 
We don't know the specifics. We know only what we've read. But what we've done, and I want you all to hear me. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm right in this. I'm painting a picture. We simply do not know, but because of what theologians have told us, we assume she was a horrible woman. And this horrible woman that we've made assumptions with, Jesus says, I'm going to have a conversation with her. Even though he discerned all the stuff about her. And at the end of the conversation, she went and preached. The town listened, and they got saved. But what we do is if we saw the woman at the well, we'd have all these assumptions based off of what we see, and we would do it with what the disciples did. Why is he talking to her? That's not true fellowship. You know what true fellowship is? I'm discerning all this about you, but I'm not going to let my assumptions prevent relationship. That's okay? As I close tonight, I want you to think about, yeah, how the temple was built in Exodus. I hope this has been some meat to chew on tonight. If you know, if you remember, I did a study once um, about the temple. I've spoken on it many times that there were three main parts of the temple. There was the courtyard, there was the holy place, and there was the most holy place. The most holy place literally held the very presence of God. It was so holy that only one priest could go once a year into this place. He was called the high priest. That's why Jesus is called our high priest, but because of him, we always have access to that most holy place of the presence of God. But before he could get to the most holy place, before anyone could enter into the holy place, there was a courtyard. And what we draw attention to in the courtyard is that the courtyard had two things. There was an altar of sacrifice, and there was a laver, a wash basin. And basically, people were bringing animals to sacrifice at the altar of sacrifice for the atonement of sin, blood sacrifices. Guess what animal was sacrificed the most? The lamb. And the wash basin, after they got done making the sacrifices, they would wash to be purified. And that's where we get our modern-day idea of baptism. Right? Wash in the water. Right? That's why some dribble and some dunk. Different forms of it, all kind of things. But one thing we never focus on about the courtyard, we always focus on the wash basin, we always focus on the sacrifice, but what we don't focus on is everyone from Israel was allowed to enter in and mingle. Before any of the sacrifices were made, before any washing, before any atonement, before anything, people entered in and there was fellowship. You see, fellowship was a part of the temple of God, designed in the old and in the new. And yet there are still believers who think that you can do life alone and be separate. It's not the way of God. Moses set this whole thing up according to materials that God told him to build. And in Hebrews 3, it says this in verse 3 through 6, is what I'm closing with. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. Just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. Every house has a builder. But the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. 
But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. We are God's house. And if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, we are the house of God. But only revealed as his should be built with proper materials. And we can't build his house without fellowship. Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep yourselves unified. How do we keep unified? Fellowship. Fellowship builds unity. Another way to say it is unity is the fruit of fellowship. We can't be unified if we're not intentional with the fellowship. I encourage you as you lead tonight, this is the altar call. Are you in true fellowship? with the people of this house if you consider this your church home. I give you all kind of ways to connect every week. House gatherings, there's men's studies, you name it, there's a room for it. I encourage you, make it a point to start building relationship with the people in this house. Because when we start building relationship, strengthening the fellowship, that's when God will look on it and say, I can add to that. And he doesn't just want to add people. He wants to. He wants his spirit to come on the church. He wants his winds to blow. He wants new things revealed. And all we got to do is start building with the right materials. Amen. Fellowship. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight?